Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Doctors Who Create. Today, I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Evan Ashkin. Dr. Ashkin is the director and founder of the North Carolina Formerly Incarcerated Transition Program, which connects chronically ill, formerly incarcerated individuals to primary care medical services. He also currently serves as a professor of family medicine at the UNC School of Medicine, teaching in the underserved track of the residency program and sees patients at Piedmont Health Services, which serves vulnerable populations in particular. So welcome Dr. Ashkin to the program. Thanks, Margaret. It's great to be here. To start with, I'd like to ask you if you could just give us a really quick summary of your program's mission, how it got started, and how you got into it. Yeah, so it took me way too long to start paying attention to the impacts of incarceration on people's health and community. And actually, as I've learned more about it, really our entire society, the impacts of our criminal legal system. Eventually, I started asking more about histories of incarceration, understanding more with my patients, the what we call collateral consequences of incarceration, all the discrimination, bias, prejudice they face. I started to you know, see that it really is vortex of sort of all things bad as far as social determinants. And clearly it's an enormous racial health equity issue is that incarceration very much disproportionately impacts communities of color as well. So it really you know, as I wanted to work more and more on racial equity issues, it, it just became very focused, obvious sort of place to, to get involved. And um, yeah, so I started understanding my patients having these tremendous gaps in care. I made the very ignorant assumption that people coming out of incarceration, if they had chronic medical problems, mental illness, substance use disorder, that of course they'd be connected to care because it made no sense not to do that. Because even if you didn't care about the person, there were going to be enormous fiscal realities if they showed up in an emergency room with preventable complications and so on. But that's exactly the way things are, you know, and I think as we understand now with our systems of systemic racism and a lot of the way we set up our healthcare system, it is irrational the way it's funded. It does not make, even though there's this argument that the market drives, you know, what we do, that's false bias, prejudice, racism, white supremacy, all those things drive what we do. So I had to look into seeing if I could help with connecting folks coming out of incarceration, jails, and prisons to essential health services, as I learned that that really wasn't happening. Mm. Were there particular patients that you were seeing that encouraged you to enter this type of work? I personally wasn't exposed to a lot of carceral care in my education, but just passively exposed through patients who happened to come into care through the hospital system or otherwise. So what made you want to pursue this avenue in particular? Yeah, you know, it's a great question because it's so invisible. I mean, people are not going to tell you that they have that history because mm-hmm. they're going to be discriminated against. As a matter of fact, it's nothing you ever want to put on a form because every time someone has to check that box, it is basically to be discriminated against in housing, employment, or other areas. So once I started to understand this a little bit, I started to ask patients and I would say stuff like, you know, I understand that people that have been in the criminal legal system experience discrimination in all parts of their lives bias, prejudice, may have had also poor treatment in healthcare. So I'm saying I get it Mm. to some degree, even though as a privileged white guy, I never will, but whatever I can. And then say, I wonder if you've experienced that or any of your loved ones. And then with putting that forth, people started to become more forthright. And it's really important what you just brought up about the only way we see it visibly is when people are brought in and their orange jumpsuit 
shackled to something with two large people with weapons, correctional officers. And without a context, without us actually educating learners in all areas of healthcare, the only assumption that you know, a rational person would make is this is a dangerous person who's done a terrible thing. And it's another insult, another form of prejudice discrimination that we fail to give a context to understand how our criminal legal system works, how people are swept up in it, that everybody is brought from jail or prison in those circumstances. It does not at all mean that they've done anything serious or that they're danger to you. But without a context, of course, we're going to perceive that way. And then there's all kinds of bias in the care that we deliver as a result and, and many restrictions because they come from incarceration. So I started to ask more, saw what my patients experienced and then felt that, you know, I really needed to try and, and create these connections if I could. Do you feel like you encountered prejudice or biased thinkings in the people that you've had to just try to educate more thoroughly in the way that they treat incarcerated individuals or formerly incarcerated individuals? Yeah, I mean, this is another is incredible failure of the House of Medicine is not to be addressing this and talking about it. And I mean, I've been involved in progressive medical causes really since medical school in 1980s, but this was never an issue that was ever brought up. And honestly, it wasn't until I wandered into a talk at a Society of Teachers of Family Medicine conference by one of my mentors, Warren Ferguson, who's a family doc at UMass Worcester, who was talking about this book, The New Jim Crow, which you know talks about basically the extension of really slavery and then convict leasing into our criminal legal system. And this is continuous, continual punishment and control of people of color in particular, although you know there's plenty of white people brought up in the system, but disproportionately impacts people of color in the system is really based on our legacy of white supremacy and who we have punished and brought into incarcerated settings. So, yeah, I mean, I, unfortunately, yes, there's lots of bias and we haven't had given people a chance to think through their own, you know, unconscious or conscious bias against people from the system. All our assumptions that you cannot watch any media without this racialization of crime as well. Right. So, you know, if you've watched any television or movies, you know, I mean, people of color are portrayed very often as criminals. There's no context to growing up in an opportunity desert. What are your other options if you have, you know, you're coming from areas of poverty with terrible schools, low unemployment. So we, we leave people to the devices of what we have sowed in their minds about crime and race. I say the good news is, though, that most people, when they get an opportunity to sit down and think about it, are very willing to examine their preconceived notions. And I've had an opportunity at UNC to do quite a bit of education. Now, I've been invited by a lot of departments to talk at their grand rounds. I talked to almost all the medical student groups. And, and actually, I've been invited to our surrounding medical schools as well. So people want to engage. I think, you know, sadly, it took George Floyd's murder to, to bring this up into more of a social visibility where people were willing to maybe think about systemic issues of race more carefully mm -hmm. and about the interface with criminal legal systems. And it's baked into our system on so many levels too, the discrimination. You know, as you probably are aware, women up until very recently in most states were shackled, well, 
pregnant, well, in labor. And, you know, it was up to the correctional officer to say, okay, now she's not in labor. You can take the shackles off. I mean, that's preposterous. So there is beginning discussion, but sadly, there's still a lot of people who do hold on to ideas that people are, you know, they should be punished. This is part of their punishment. Maybe they're not deserving of health services. Sadly, until 1976, you know, there was no constitutional right to health services when you were incarcerated. It wasn't until 1976 Supreme Court decision, Estelle versus Gamble, which which actually established a right to health care, but set no standards for that care. So the standards of health care in carceral settings are very varied. Is there any plans or thoughts of expanding your program towards providing health care or educating currently incarcerated individuals, or is it mainly um, focused on formerly incarcerated individuals in the future? So a quick overview of what our program is. So when mm-hmm. I when I got interested, I, happily, there were other people that have done this work. The Transition Clinic Network is what I based our program on. And this was started, you know, they are very forward thinking. And this normally doesn't happen in academics. They actually went and talked <laughs> to people impacted by the problem. And, wow. and the model is really based on those closest to the problem or closest to the solutions and nothing about us without us. So mm-hmm. our community health workers are formerly incarcerated. And they are on all of our development program, leadership, research committees, and, are, and it's not tokenism, I mean, very involved in our planning. So what they did with the Transition Clinic Network is ask people coming out of incarceration, what would help? And the answer was people like us. So that's where they started this model of hiring people who are formerly incarcerated, training them as community health workers, and embedding them in initially, and very much in our state, in federally qualified health centers because they have wraparound services, low cost, low barrier care, and a lot of times low cost medications as well. So that was the model that we've adopted in North Carolina. Another barrier we faced though is since we didn't expand Medicaid in our state, almost everyone we're trying to care for is uninsured. So we actually, I had to raise money to cover the co-pays because even though it was 20 or 25 bucks to be seen at an FQHC, that was unaffordable and then medications unaffordable. So we have, for our folks, been able to raise money to cover those costs. So it's based on then embedding the community health worker in a medical home, FQHC with wraparound services. And very importantly, though, it's comprehensive. It is about meeting the needs of a client. So our CHWs find out what their goals are and what their needs are, because, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, people need a roof over their head. They need food. They need a job, transportation, an ID help with reunification with family. And healthcare is at the bottom of that list. And a lot of people also don't trust the diagnosis they may have been given when they were incarcerated because in some of those settings, they weren't shown a lot of love, dignity, and respect. So our CHWs work with people, try to put together that comprehensive plan, are very well connected with reentry services, but importantly, are embedded in a medical home so then can get people into these essential services for not just physical health, though. I mean, very much mental health and substance use is very, very prevalent. That's a matter of fact, a lot of people are incarcerated for the crime of mental illness or the crime of substance use disorder. And incarceration is harmful. It's certainly not helpful for any of that. These systems were not set up to treat people. It's not the sheriff's and the jail's fault, honestly. I mean, they were not developed to be the social safety net for Mm -hmm for substance use disorder and mental illness, but that's exactly what's happened in the U.S. So people, we very quickly realized we had to step into that arena. So actually we do a lot of work now in getting people onto treatment post-release, but actually working with jails and in Durham and Orange where I are now, the jails 
if you're on medication for opioid use disorder, like Suboxone or Methadone, you get to stay on them while you're incarcerated. I mean, unbelievable, we've been taking people off this life-saving treatment to violation of the American Disabilities Act, but that's what's been happening. And now we're actually working with our state prison system to get people started prior to release, because that has been shown to be highly effective. You can reduce post-overdose deaths by 60 to 80% oh if you gosh. start people prior to release and continue in the community, because it turns out the people that are the highest risk for death in the opioid epidemic are actually people post-release from mm. prisons and jails. And again, we have not been offering this service. I mean, we haven't been offering it in general, <laughs> incredible failure, but specifically to this incredibly at-risk population. North Carolina, we know that in the first two weeks post-release, you are 50 times greater risk than the general population to die of an opioid overdose. Wow. So it's, you know, it's imperative to get people on this life-saving treatment and continue it in the community. Well, I mean, talk about invisibility. I feel like I've never heard those numbers broken down into what types of subgroups are dying from overdose deaths. So that is very important Yeah, I mean, know. sadly, it, yeah, with all the public publicity, again, remains invisible. I do have to say, though, that the federal government has been paying attention to incarceration mm -hmm. risk. So, I mean, one of the nice things is that, you know, the Biden administration through SAMHSA and HRSA through the Bureau of Justice, there is now a lot of funding actually being made available to communities, municipalities to support medication for opioid use disorder treatment mm -hmm. in the jails and prisons. And actually we're, mm -hmm. we're pretty involved in trying to push that in our state and getting involved in doing technical assistance with communities that want to start making these connections. I'm wondering about the concrete steps that you take in order to get this program moving, specifically things like how do you translate an idea you have about improving equity, about connecting people to care, finding these community health workers, and on a practical level, actually split your time in doing each task that you need to do in order to get the idea off the ground and moving? Margaret, you know, it's obviously I have a tremendous privilege and that played a huge role in my ability to do this. I just want to say that right up front. So I'm a professor of family medicine, I'm a white male. I, over the years, have been involved in a lot of underserved care in the state with uh, Spanish-speaking patients, and so, so I've developed a network and was able to leverage that when I started to pay attention to this to be able to pretty quickly find out who I needed to talk to at the state, Department of Health and Human Services and our state corrections system to, to, to get a better idea of what, what was actually happening. But probably the smartest thing I did, Margaret, and this I just cannot recommend highly enough, is I actually spent my first year just actually talking to people on the ground doing reentry work. So I just, for anybody who would talk to me who was doing a local transition house, substance use treatment, food for low income or unhoused people, people who are helping with employment. So I, I, I spent a lot of time really trying to just understand what was being done on the ground in the reentry community, tried to talk to as many formerly incarcerated people as I could. And, and a lot of the folks in that work were formerly incarcerated. That was the smartest thing I did because I really then was able to understand what was actually happening, who were the people actually getting things done, and then was able to leverage my privilege to actually go really right to the State Department of Health and Human Services, got a small grant, which I was able to funnel to the Durham Health Department, and they actually agreed to hire our first community health worker 
And we have a wonderful federally qualified health center called Lincoln Community Health Center in Durham. And was able to get in touch with the medical director again, all these things because, you know, of my position. But you guys, a lot of folks here are getting your MDs or listening to this. And, you know, it's you have that MD after your name, even though you may be completely unqualified to do things, <laughs> people will assume you're qualified to do it. So I was able to, to use those connections to get the first FIT program off the ground in Durham and then had written successful grants for other work I'd done in the past with some philanthropic organizations, got them to fund the next step. And then um, our state prison system actually have some fantastic leaders in our, in our, who run our prison system. We're actually very, very committed to improving health equity, uh, even though they have their hands tied by funding and all kinds of other issues, but actually have a direct contract with our prison system to help support our community health workers, help expand around the state. And then I got state funding to help pay for the meds and the visits again through understanding how to write grants. But, you know, if you don't know that, you know, find people that know how to write grants for you because that you can waste a lot of time if you don't get some help with, with that process. Most importantly, I really, really tried to talk to everybody who in the state I could find who was interested in health and incarceration UNC happened to be a place where there were a lot of folks interested. As a matter of fact, one of the, I didn't know this at the time, but in the whole country, UNC is actually one of the places with the most researchers, both in the social sciences, social medicine, OBGYN, surgery, psychiatry, nursing, mental health. So actually found tremendous support in, in trying to leverage this program. And then, you know, I partnered with the Transition Clinic Network and continue to partner with them. But happily now, you know, we've, we now have 13 community health workers. We're in six counties, most of the major metropolitan areas. And we're working with the state prison system actually to help pilot their first MAT program and then working with, with jail. So it was able to, to build momentum pretty quickly um, in, in getting the program going. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for going into that. When you reach out to government organizations like the health department or the corrections department, do you get pushback from them, from someone who isn't directly involved in everyday things that they do, but then is coming in with like all of these new ideas and all of these new things that you want to get done? So I found happily a, a lot of interest. So my, one of my first phone calls was to the medical director of the prison system, this fabulous woman, Paula Smith, family physician, who was so frustrated with the inability that she had inside the system to get people connected to care. This mm -hmm. is where monies are siloed. She really had very little available to her, especially at that time, to do any connections to care. So actually she was very supportive. What she pointed out were all the barriers in the system. I mean, she wanted to help and connected me with the right people. It's the same with health and human services. It didn't take long to find people that were interested in this, but there were people naming a lot of the barriers. And one of my favorite sayings is that argue for your limitations and sure enough, they're your limitations. So one thing I've always tried to live by is just to ignore when people say, well, that's not going to work. You can't do that. And just say, okay, and then go around, whatever. And happily found the right people who we were able to, you know, figure some workarounds. Initially, when we got one grant from the state, they said, well, we can't pay for meds you know, you can only use this to pay for visits. And I was like, all right. So we took it. And then as we got, I kept bugging them, you know, really you can't pay for me. No, no. And I was like, you know, maybe you could, you know, and, and after just 
being polite and <laughs> understanding the system they work in, we actually were able to get that policy changed and then are able wow. to use that to support. Again, my misconceptions about also villainizing people who were in law enforcement, mm-hmm. the prisons and jails, I mean, totally wrong. I mean, I have just, I cannot tell you how many fabulous people I've met, sheriffs, deputies, correctional officers, people running health facilities, the person who are deeply concerned about this issue, but have tremendous problems with funding, hiring people, getting nurses, providers. I mean, there are tremendous barriers. And then of course, there are some, sadly, people that do fulfill my biases and prejudices, but happily they have been it's been much more the opposite. There have been many inspirational people and then just problem solving, working alongside them, trying to understand how to navigate through those systems. It sounds like one of the themes that you've pointed out throughout this conversation is just talking to people over and over again to a lot of diverse array of people, people who actually see this every single day and deal with it and gaining a lot of wisdom and empathy and understanding of what they do and what they're interested in and what their motivations are. And then working on that together. Yeah. You know, Margaret, good point, because a lot of times the people who are the most recalcitrant in their views are the people who are removed from the problem Hmm. and are just sitting and judging. But I've had a chance to sit down with correctional officers at a jail who just had no experience with what Suboxone or Methadone was for, how it was going to be helpful and might've heard a lot of negative things, but they're on the front lines. They, they know that what we're doing doesn't work. Mm. So actually found it very, very rewarding and, you know, quick conversations and to be able to really push through a lot of prejudgment and just lack of knowledge and actually get to a a place of collaboration and moving forward pretty quickly. It's much harder, honestly, with, I think people who, to your point, are disconnected, don't understand, don't see on the front lines and, and may hold some very negative views that are often racialized about people who are in the criminal legal system, what they deserve, what they don't deserve, that they're making choices, that they don't want help, you know, all these really preposterous things that quickly go away when you're on the front lines and actually working with people and just see that the vast majority of people, you know, are absolutely wanting to escape from this system and get back to a normal life be participants with their family, have a job, but face so many barriers, so much bias. And, you know, sadly, even after they've served their time, you know, that felony conviction for the rest of your life interferes with meaningful employment and scholarships for education, even getting supplemental nutrition assistance, food stamps. If you have certain drug convictions, you can't even get SNAP benefits in a lot of states. Yeah, that's just, it's just hard to think about when you put it all together like that, how much suffering we put on those who have been incarcerated. And afterwards, it seems like they, in a way, are still incarcerated just by the society itself and its expectations of them. Yeah, I mean, not being able to have meaningful work for like the rest of your life. I mean, just think about what you and everybody else in healthcare has done to try to have meaningful work, right? Right. Yet, throwing away all your young adult years, <laughs> school, <laughs> graduations, all that, what you're willing to do is have meaningful work. And we make that impossible 
for most people coming out of incarceration. Most licensure, certainly in healthcare, but even cosmetology, many, many things require background checks. And you just excluded de facto if you have a felony conviction. And that might've happened because you were 17 years old, swept up because there was a disturbance at a party. Maybe someone had drugs. There was maybe a weapon, blah, blah, blah. The DA comes in, says, you know, we're going to press all these charges. However, if you take a plea, we're going to you throw these away and you'll walk, but you don't understand right. that that plea could include a felony conviction and then you're done. And, you know, and you know, let's say if you're like a young black male, the system is not set up to support you. You correctly understand that it is rigged against you. So you're probably, you probably should take that plea, yeah. but then that's it. You're done. What advice do you have for those of us who are interested in supporting or developing our own programs or working with people interested in developing those programs for aiding the underserved, like carceral populations? Yeah, so when you identify an issue that you feel passionate about, which I hope happens to everybody listening to this podcast, then I would say step one is put on your listening hat and do your best to, to talk to the people who are impacted by the issue you care about. So whatever it is, if it's about intimate partner violence, if it's people who are refugees, if it's about migrant farm workers in your community, whatever it is, talk to those folks and understand what they think are the needs that they have and then how that relates to what your interest is. And then try to talk to people who already are working in your community on those issues or around those issues. If no one's directly working on, you know, maternity care for, for farm workers, but someone is probably working on other things for farm workers in your area. So talk to people who are either in and around that issue Talk to the people impacted, and that will almost certainly lead you in a direction where you'll be able to be the most impactful. Thank you so much for those wise words. If someone is interested in contacting you after this episode, is there an email or a Twitter or anything like that that you would be willing to share? Yeah, of course. So my email is ashkin, A-S-H-K-I-N, at medmed.unc.edu. You can also find our program at ncfitprogram.org with more information. And then if you're interested in this, I would highly recommend you go look up the Transitions Clinic Network, which I owe everything we've done to their wisdom and knowledge <laughs> and generosity and the community health worker network in the U.S. that really helps uplift the voices of people impacted by incarceration and helps drive what we do. Thank you so much, Dr. Ashkin. I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me, Margaret. Enjoyed it. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe, tell a friend, leave a review. We would love to hear from you. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at doctorswhocreate at gmail.com. Or tweet us at doctorscreate. Or check out our website, doctorswhocreate.com to listen to our podcast episodes and also to check out other articles and profiles of physicians who are creative. Intro music brought to you by the band Night Float.